Hello and welcome to Insights, the Cubs UCC podcast with me, Anthony MacDonald, Professor of Human Resource Management. Each week I find out some of the new and groundbreaking research and ideas from Cubs lecturers that are making an impact on society in Ireland and abroad. From business to Brexit, management to marketing, we're bringing you fresh perspectives and different ways of thinking here on the Insights podcast. And on this episode, I find out more about whistleblowing, speaking out and the effects that it has on the people and their organisations, with one of the foremost experts on whistleblowing, Kate Kenny, Professor of Business and Society at NUI Galway. Kate was speaking recently at a Cubs research seminar and I spoke to her about whistleblowing, both in Ireland and abroad. Kate, you're author of numerous books and studies into whistleblowing, but yet, still, in 2020, you say that to speak up and expose wrongdoing often results in professional and personal rule. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? So speaking up about wrongdoing is still a massive issue and I think it's kind of in the news at the moment for a lot of reasons. There's a big new EU law coming in that's going to have radical implications for Irish organisations and actually organisations across all the member states in the next two years actually. So that's a big issue that I think, you know, and I know Anthony and many people here at Cubs are studying organisational practices and HRM and a lot of the time these whistleblowing law changes end up affecting HRM practitioners. So it's going to be in the news and it's going to be on people's to-do lists over the next couple of years. I guess it's also been in the news because of high-profile whistleblowing cases that come out. Sad to say that, you know, oftentimes when an organisation is really broken systemically, like there's deep-seated problems, it's whistleblowers that emerge to tell us about it. Uh, unfortunately for them. So these are some of the reasons that it's in the news for sure at the moment, yeah. And is there um, is there a difference from country to country in terms of is there countries where it is done better, where it's less, or is this just a pretty widespread issue from country to country where... Yeah, it's well, as bad actually, as everywhere. no, I know most countries don't have any whistleblowing protections uh, legally. Uh, the US were the, was the first country to bring some in. Um, around 1989, federal workers, government workers in the US uh, brought in whistleblowing protections and then spread to the uh, private sector in the US after, you'll recall, you and I are old enough to remember Enron, right? Yeah. So after Enron, there was um, a revision of a lot of private sector laws to really lots of different revisions, but also to make it certain that whistleblowers in the private sector would be protected. So Sharon Watkins was the famous whistleblower from Enron uh, who really struggled to speak up about some of the corruption leading to the, one of the largest, the largest at the time, uh, collapse of a private sector organisation. So that brought in massive reform, Sarbanes-Oxley. So we've had the US kind of blazing a trail, if you like, uh, in whistleblower protections. The UK then followed suit in the 90s. They brought in the PEDA law, which was exciting at its time, but we've now, more than 10 years later, uh, actually that was 98, so 20 years later, <laughs> we've seen a lot of the holds um, with the PEDA law in the UK. And then Ireland brought in a law in 2014, which was seen at the time as the world's best whistleblowing law. Imagine, the Public Disclosure Act. And uh, so people were were pretty keen on this coming in. But with Ireland, with the UK, with the US, here's what happens. You get a new law introduced and then it gets tested in the courts and then all the loopholes become clear and then all the issues around what they should have done when they designed the law in the first place uh, come out. And so really over the last 20, 30 years, we've had testing of the law in different jurisdictions like those. So from that position then, the EU brought in the EU directive and that's been transposed in the next couple of years, like I say. And so 
that's been a learning from what other countries should have done right. So you always have a bit of tire kicking when you introduce new law. Whistleblowing is no different. And so what we're hoping now is that the EU directive will be transposed to different member states like Ireland in the spirit it was written. Because I have to say, even the most critical whistleblowing commentators, and believe you me, I know some of the academics and the lawyers are pretty critical people, you know, they don't praise things lightly. They are excited about the EU directive. They think that if it's actually imposed in different countries in the way it was intended, it's going to make a massive difference. You know, it really addresses a lot of the big issues. So I guess in Ireland, I'm sitting here as are a number of barristers that I would work with and advocates and lawyers for whistleblowers. And we've got our fingers crossed. We're waiting to see now in the next two years how this is going to get transposed into Irish law because it could be very good. Yeah. But in terms of like, so like there's the hope um, the yeah. excitement maybe even in terms of that this is happening and this is a real positive development but are we still not that, that, that how can we be confident that back to the same issue of you know legislation is only as good as its implementation and how it's yeah, ultimately absolutely. enacted and, and carried out which ultimately puts a lot of responsibility on state bodies public bodies and ultimately as individuals yeah, within yeah. these organisations. That's really insightful, you know, I mean, you can design such beautiful legislation on paper and then the way it gets implemented. So as an example of that, right, um, under the Irish law of 2014, if you can imagine you're you're sitting at your desk now, I know this wouldn't be the case for yourself Anthony, but <laughs> say for example you witnessed egregious serious wrongdoing and you decided, right, I better, you know, speak up about this. Um, under the Irish law, you should be able to go to your line manager and you're protected from liability if you do that. If they retaliate against you, you're protected. If they fire you, you're protected against being fired. And actually, you are also entitled to go outside to the regulatory body, whoever it might be in your sector, depending if you're public or private, there's some sort of oversight body. You're also entitled to go to them, in some cases a minister, a county council. So these are people um, we kind of call prescribed persons or they're bodies that are there to take disclosures. Right, so four years in, how did it look? We implemented the law in 2014. There was some research done in 2018. For nearly 80 percent of these prescribed bodies weren't really fulfilling their remit in terms of putting information out there for the public to say hey come forward if we're you know regulating your your organization um reporting was pretty lackadaisical so it's exactly what you say the implementation not so perfect here now the eu directive isn't messing around it's pretty specific about you do need to be reporting you do need to be reporting nationally and then back to the european union that there's um consequences if you don't And so it's got more of a focus. Again, this is a learning that they've kind of implemented from different legislations. The focus is on it's not just uh, about writing it, but rather about implementing it. But can I just say one more thing that really, I mean, this happens in every law, but particularly laws to do with business, as you well know. You get a law implemented and then often there is various interest groups and lobby groups that will see that law erode. If you watch say how whistleblowing the private sector legislation has fared in the US since the 80s. What you've had is successive governments will get into power, you'll have sort of the growth of particular lobby interests, the law gets rolled back and repealed, then someone else comes in and they strengthen the law. So for example um, we had uh, the kind of weakening of protection for private sector whistleblowers, particularly in the financial sector. And then, kind of, particularly with Barack Obama, it was a real strengthening and starting paying rewards for whistleblowers in finance in the US. And uh, so we've kind of had, it goes peaks and troughs depending on the political agenda at the time, who's in power. And also, it's really interesting, often a big case 
will drive change in legislation. So, um, for example, this EU directive I've been telling you about, that all comes from one guy. It doesn't all come from one guy, but as often is the case, the law changes because a particular story captures the public interest. We had Antoine Deltour. He was a PricewaterhouseCoopers um, tax employee. So he kind of wanted to speak up about the widespread tax evasion that was happening under his watch and uh, retaliated against, life ruined, the usual sad story that uh, unfortunately we're not surprised by. But what that meant was um, all of this money was not going into EU member state coffers. Uh, when this became a news story and Antoine Del Tour gets celebrated for being a whistleblower that tried to speak up about this horrendous tax evasion, then that kind of really got wind in the European Commission and everyone started to get behind this cause. And it was this sort of story that got cited again and again when the whistleblowing directive was being proposed and debated. So you have one story kind of elevated. Kind of the same here happened in relation to the Morris McCabe case. Um, the 2014 legislation came partly as a result of some uh, problems that people were having with keeping sources sensitive and issues around that. And so, um, yeah, all the reasons that you say you can bring in a law, but it can get lobbied against and get rolled back and also implementation not so good. And I guess just around the um, the lobbying side of it, when Ireland's law came in 2014, there was a rollback of that a couple of years ago, which a lot of us were pretty upset to see. So in private sector, um, technically, you are not allowed to write a clause into someone's contract to say if you see something and you are a whistleblower and you speak up against about serious wrongdoing, you're not really allowed to write a silencing clause like a non-disclosure agreement or a confidentiality agreement. The whistleblowing bit trumps the NDA bit, right, under law. But um, the EU brought in what's called the Trade Secrets Directive two years ago. And that says that organisations are entitled to secrecy for some things that and the definition is quite broad, that they deem gives them a competitive advantage and that they don't want to go outside. Fair enough. So then it becomes up to the different member states. How are you going to balance your whistleblowing protections with your trade secrets protections? Denmark and France, when they kind of transposed that trade secret, they said, right, whistleblowing protections trump the trade secrets. So we will never silence someone under law if they're speaking up in whistleblower capacity. In Ireland, we actually introduced a public interest test. That's a little clause that makes it that little bit harder for a private sector employee in Ireland to speak up. The effect overall, what does this actually mean for the person sitting in the, I don't know, IT company or biotech or whatever, and they see something seriously wrong it's a chill effect because legally it's not straightforward. If they do claim whistleblower protection now, they have to pass a test to show they spoke up in the public interest. That is a lawyer's paradise because it's so difficult to prove your motivation is pure. Does that make mm, sense? Yep. So that was a test that was brought in, a kind of a, a lovely piece of legislation that was then sort of, I would say, sullied a little bit a couple of years ago in Ireland. And so the trade secrets sitting on top of our PDA, not great news for private sector employees in this country. You know, so uh, yeah, these are, these are some of the things that can happen. And that really brings me to, you know, you mentioned the Morris McCabe and I remember following yeah. that and reading the McClifford's book and stuff. And and this is where back to you start bringing in legislation. But when you see these public cases, and we're seeing it, I suppose, in terms of some of the dealings with Trump at the moment and that in terms of how 
a person in a private organization that sees something very wrong and you if you've read some of that stuff it's it certainly wouldn't um make you feel you'd certainly be thinking more than twice about speaking for sure. speaking out and it's like how do we actually move beyond that because uh, like back to the idea you spoke about the spirit of what this is about it ultimately is actually to try and call out real wrong practice that ultimately has kind of managed to supersede all other practices or procedures that ultimately can be can address some of these issues but how do we actually in practice yeah how do organizations you know deal with this Absolutely. I mean, so we asked that very question and we were um, funded to do some research from the Association of Certified Chartered Accountants and the ESRC in the UK. We launched the book actually at Linkletter's Law Firm in London there in October. It's exactly that. It's called The Whistleblowing Guide. It's a speak up guide for organisations. What we did was we analysed best practice across the healthcare system in the UK, across multinational engineering and and finance. What are organizations who've gotten this right doing? Because obviously what you want to happen is someone sees something wrong. They speak to their line manager. Wrong thing gets sorted. Person is fine. And, you know, there's really great research by an Irish body, Transparency International, based in Dublin. Um, They've got some really insightful uh, studies of people speaking out why they do it, why they don't, what happens when they do. And what they've figured out is really about you know one in five people will say that they've they've uh, seen something and um when they spoke out about it they received some form of retaliation so what that means is most of the time when you see something wrong and you say something you don't get retaliated against the morris mccabe's the um daniel ellsberg's the various big names we think about um in terms of whistleblowers that's that's not the typical um, it really is not so many people. But then one in 10 in Ireland, that's still 33,000 workers that reckon they've received some sort of retaliation for speaking up about something. So it's you know it's still serious. So what can organisations do? Um, there's some very basic things. Uh, it needs to be taken seriously by all levels. There's policies and procedures that can be put in place. People need to know who to speak up to. But it's just as if, say I was telling you, Anthony, listen, now we're sitting here in this office in, in Cubs and uh, we have something serious to talk about and I want you to trust me. So what do you, you know, this is back to our behavioral psychology and sociology and all of the things. And this is something we really deal with in the book. Um, what's going to make you trust me? Actually, trust is a leap into the unknown, right? You don't know me. So you're like, right, I don't know who this person is asking me to trust them. What's going to fill that gap? And there's various kind of aspects that you can signal to someone to to make them trust you. So one of them is, um, is stories. So your first thing is cognitively. Uh, in your head. No, I'm not saying this is what you will do, but typically what we do is we say, right, what what stories, what narratives um, do I have around trusting this person? So who else has she spoken to? What has her behaviour been in the past? What stories can I call on to decide whether I'll trust her? And if you're trying to speak up about whistleblowing, exact same thing. We were saying, right, I'm going to go to my line manager. Did Mary down the corridor go to him or her last week? What happened to her when she spoke up? I heard someone else use the whistleblowing system. Did it work? No. Did they get retaliated against? We formulate our decisions based on those sorts of stories. We fill the blanks. We trust people based on those kind of things. So a smart organisation that wants to take that seriously, they're not going to leave this to chance. They're going to be continually responding. One of the NHS trust managers we interviewed, it was Gas. He 
he used to spend his time on a Friday afternoon, literally on the company intranet, responding to every little disclosure that had been made. Now, some of them were ridiculous. They were about the price of crisps in the canteen going up. But he would personally go on the intranet and be answering because he said, if I'm answering about the price of crisps, then people will trust me enough to come forward about something really serious. And that was this insightful way of responding, but to create this atmosphere of trust. The other thing is, I mean, we trust people. We don't trust systems. So if I'm asking you, well, trust this whistleblowing system, you're going to be thinking in your head, what face is on the other end of that system? Who's answering that? Who is this person operating this and so here again what you want to do is it's really helpful to personalize it for a senior person look I'm overseeing this whistleblowing system this is it ultimately comes to me those are some of the subtle ways but you can see immediately that this is way more than a policy way more than a system it's back to what helps people to feel trustworthiness and to help people feel like they're going to be responded to and looked after it's not a one-off thing if someone discloses an investigation often ensues you have to keep telling the person one month two months later this is what's happening we're not just taking your information and going off into ether because this is scary for people it's like you know when you send someone an email and you don't hear back and you don't know, they could have like deleted it by accident or they could be off in Taiwan on holidays. But we often read negative things into silence. Same with whistleblower. They use the system, they don't hear back. It's pretty scary. So all of those very subtle things um, help organisations uh, to do a better job. But can I just say, I mean, it's it's clearly really important that if this done is in, is done in a token way, because the law tells you to, and you're not really serious about dealing with some very systemic issues that come up. Employees are so smart, they're going to figure that out straight away. And I think that's one of the issues we're having. So another um, book I released last year was on financial services whistleblowing. And particularly, we've seen huge changes since the crisis in the UK, in the UK, sorry, and in Ireland, uh, cultural changes in financial sector. But some of the surveys that came out just last year, both in Ireland and the UK, indicate that even with those changes, many of these involved whistleblowing procedures, you know, people don't fully feel trustworthiness and they don't fully feel like they're going to be protected if they speak up. So doing it from a tokenistic point of view, that is implementing a whistleblowing system and policy, you kind of might as well not do it if it's not being done in the full spirit of it. So that's really what the research is suggesting us. People cop onto that pretty quick. Um, I, I'll just tell you one quick story. I did interview quite a senior person in a financial institution um, who told me, well, I have the whistleblowing hotline. I'm the person responsible for answering the calls that come through. And I was kind of saying, and you know, that sounds like a hugely responsible job. And how many times has this whistleblowing hotline rang, you know? And he was kind of saying, well, twice in the last year. <laughs> and one of those times was the wrong number. So, <laughs> so and that was because... People treated the whistleblowing hotline as something, well, I'm never going to do because I don't have trust that will be respected. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you, you talk about the stories and narratives and, and it's back to the extreme. Like like often we always love the extreme examples of the, you know, WikiLeaks, the Morris McCabe, which are pretty, you know, they're, they're phenomenal. But it's back to, we presumably we also, that idea of trust is the need that... People need to realise that if people that have done that, that we, not, we need to start getting the positive stories. That's in it. In terms of that, that actually organisations and people have, you know, made it in the right, made disclosed in the right way, has been treated appropriately, 
and there hasn't been these adverse because you know, it's back to you know the news where the items are often these extreme examples and yeah. is that is that a really key piece and I guess how does our how do organizations communicate almost that because you don't want to be communicating that you're getting loads of um these issues but equally yeah. there is that challenge about you do if you really are taking it serious you do need to get across that actually this works yeah absolutely don't be afraid no the, this is so true um you need to be creative there are there are definitely ways of communicating positive stories that don't necessarily jeopardize the, the confidentiality of the whistleblower because people do not want to be associated with this label usually if they can if they can avoid it uh for lots of reasons that really bear out in research that doesn't um it's not always seen as a positive thing, as you know. So, but but organisations can be very creative about saying um, that. Well, there was a serious issue. This is what we can say about the issue. Somebody came forward. This was a really good thing. So that's um, really key. I'm 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 am smiling because you you kind of uh, you highlighted one of the key issues right now. So we're seeing a move. Oh, in all of the the wider context of ethical organizations, uh, FTSE for Good, that index that rates ethical firms, all of this, people making public the number of whistleblowing disclosures is now becoming a thing. We're seeing whistleblowing advocacy groups and uh, speak up consultancy firms, encouraging firms to do it. In, in various sectors, some organizations are starting to do that as part of their annual report. And it's seen as a positive thing. So aviation would be a, a classic one. In aviation, it's long been the case that you declare we had X number of problems reported last year and we dealt with them all because problems are going to happen. So only someone disingenuous would say, oh my goodness, you're declaring problems. You know, that, that sounds like a reason that it's, uh, that doesn't sound like a good thing for the organisation, but it is seen as a good thing. So it's about sort of being creative and telling those stories. Um, but even on the wider thing, we just completed... I, uh, some new research on what we call post-disclosure survival strategies. So I was very curious exactly about the question you asked. People who do come full circle, they speak up, maybe they receive some retaliation along the way, um, sometimes more, sometimes less, but they get to come around, see the organisation be transformed, see that their disclosures really did some good. And I mean, back to Morris McCabe, Ireland's roads are safer now. There is so much better in policing and in the Irish community. Would he have chosen to go through what he went through? Not at all. Has he changed this country? Yes. And so another example would be Tom Clonan, military whistleblower, defence forces in Ireland. He was issued a full apology just before Christmas and um, he has been through a very tough time with his former organisation. He spoke up about serious uh, sexual harassment, bullying and uh, problematic practices with how women were being treated and some young men had turned out in the Defence Forces, which gave rise to a government inquiry. Tom is a soldier through and through and was very keen to act as loyally as he could to his organisation, which to him meant calling out those issues. Um, he actually did it as part of a, a PhD project initially, which was then taken up by the media. But the point is that Tom got to see the, the changes implemented in the Defence Forces. So the organisation he loved and wanted to work to, to help w became a better one because of, of his speak outs. And uh, as part of the research that we've done on these kind of post-disclosure survival strategies, we've got five or six exemplar cases. Um, the two ones I mentioned, we don't have. They're just some Irish examples, Morris McCabe and Tom Clonan. But we've got some international examples, Australia, the US. Uh, Kim Holt would be a very good example, NHS whistleblower. 
She was then re-employed by the NHS in order to make sure they do the best they can by whistleblowers and take in disclosures. And so she went through quite a tough time, but kind of has come around full circle with the organisation. It's unusual, but it happens. But we do need to celebrate those stories because that's the end result. And, you know, what we're hoping to do is to bypass all the retaliation yeah. bit and go straight yeah. to the improving bit, yeah. right? So, yeah. But ultimately, that's a key presumed outcome is that there is that ultimately the stories and the, the fact is that inevitably there's going to be practice that this is going to be needed because it's just institutions and humans involved but is that there are those positive stories where actually a person does ultimately get to continue employment um doesn't experience heart exercise and i suppose the more we get through that and i think it's back to maybe it's also as you mentioned the ethics piece and there's a big push that we're seeing a lot more talk about values yes and as a recently with an exec audience and i was really impressed by one person who spoke about how they actually were looking to manage out a particular employee, one of their best performers, but because the way they were getting to the performance wasn't in keeping with how they as an organisation want to work, which is often that big challenge of if everything is about profit, short term, and ultimately it's not necessarily, you know, it doesn't matter how you get there in some organisations. So there is kind of a lot of things need to come together with with legislation, which is presumably always important to have in this type of area. Um, I think that comes to mind is also the the word, Mm -hmm. whistleblowing. Yeah. Is that a problem here? Because it's language, yeah. there's a real negative connotation almost yep. about it. Is that something, does, is sure. that, like when we talk about this new legislation yeah. and directors, is that, is it still that language? Yeah, it's funny. The language, the term itself comes from the 70s. Um, do you remember the scene in Fight Club where Brad Pitt meets Edward Norton on the, sorry now to bring it down to <laughs> pop culture, but that um, they meet on the plane and he's telling him, oh, I work for one of those dodgy car companies <laughs> and I'm the guy who figures out is the cost of this accident going to be worth uh, recompensing the, the person and you just got this chill of how calculating and cold that organisation is. Well, there was a whistleblower um, came out of, that was actually based on a case in the 1970s in the US, uh, as you know, and a whistleblower came out around it and a guy called Ralph Nader was the first person to coin the term. So here's the thing, what I found is when people find themselves getting harsh retaliation and they need to seek help, they need protection under the law, Often a journalist will come to them and go, you know, you're a whistleblower. Or a lawyer lawyer will say, well, I can't protect you, but if you go for whistleblowing protection, I can protect you. And they go, oh, well, yeah, that sounds like a handy label, actually, because nobody else is helping me. So in some cases, whistleblowing is a positive thing for people then. And, you know, just interviewed, we've interviewed nearly 100 people in depth who found themselves in this situation. And and you get connected with others who similarly, and, and it's around that whistleblowing tag or label that they collect and that's nice and that's positive but um, it has all of those negative things so one of the Transparency International studies they ask people, ordinary people and not whistleblowers, just ordinary employees would you like to work with a whistleblower? So for all the, I think 90% of people said they approved of whistleblowers but turns out a lot less wanted to work with one so there is that negative label for and is sure. And that, is that partly though fear in terms of the idea is that there's somebody that they're there looking to catch I people think out and as an odd it's the, tr- the the troublemaker is looking for the chink when really like these a lot of these cases are about really systematic 
major issues that have not been dealt with as well, I guess. So is that yeah. just a natural fear in terms of, oh, I don't want them there as a troublemaker, they're going to be... I think, you know, there there is that element. Anyone that, any of the genuine whistleblowers that, I, that I've met, you know, they're not going to be speaking up because someone brought a post-it. No, not at all. <laughs> People don't go through that for yeah. the crack or for something minor. Exactly. This yeah, is yeah. like, no, I have to, you know, so you're right. Yes, possibly. And it's totally not borne out. But I think it's a little bit deeper than that. You know, there's a lovely paper well, one of the things, uh, the points that I made in, in the book on the financial sector was that, you know, there's an element of all of us that's invested in the status quo. We trust institutions. We, we need stability. We grow up with institutions like banks, like the health service, hospitals. We can't do without those. If I turn up at your door and say the way the world looked to you yesterday is completely wrong. And actually, these organizations are more corrupt bleaker, darker than you realised. And they're the organisations that you still depend on for your money if it's the bank or for your health if it's the hospital. Do you want to hear me say this to you? It's that kind of Cassandra complex. There's an element perhaps of each of us that viscerally reacts against the person who turns up at our door giving us. There's a lovely interview with um, David Morgan, is a psychologist that we know in, in London, and he does a lot of pro bono work with whistleblowers. And he's spoken very honestly about this. He said, you know, I sit here in the office and at the end of the day, I have to go home and, and decompress somehow because I have taken in so much blackness about how the world is. And part of me hates hearing this from the person and part of me resents the person for sitting in my office and telling me these things about the world because now I have to go home to my kids and the world is worse. And I think that's very insightful, you know, and uh, and we've had like a, a popular culture, you know, there's an Ibsen play around this. Um, there's uh, lots of kind of theoretical devices. Obviously, Sigmund Freud would tell us a lot about this. There are defense mechanisms, those kinds of things uh, come up against. We love to defend ourselves against anything that's, that's a threat to you know our sense of stability and well-being. And maybe whistleblowers fall into that category until we think through and think, well, you know, they are speaking out about ultimately things that make us safer. Yeah. yeah. But it again comes back to I think, th- that idea of the stories and the positives and like you know the Morris McCabe thing ultimately that has led to yeah. to longer term. We we all benefit ultimately from that. But it's again it's how that is potentially sold. And I think yeah. to your point too, I suppose is this piece about um, reading through that it does cause you to reflect in terms of from many levels in terms of obviously the turmoil of that story um, but equally and you try to place would I have been strong enough to do that because we almost kind of characterise a lot of these well-known whistleblowers as these over, you know, these exceptional individuals. But that's partly part of the problem, possibly, is that we they shouldn't be. This is just, mm. it should be possible. An ordinary person is ultimately just feels that there's something wrong that they can report and it'll be listened to, I guess. Yeah, and I think, I mean, one of the key things there is there's a study by Rothschild and Mita from um, the 1990s and they, they have it on the nose. Most, many, many whistleblowers never intended to be a whistle so it becomes it's an accidental process it's it's more i spoke up to my line manager nothing was done maybe i spoke up to somebody else nothing was done maybe i started to receive retaliation maybe i notice i've been demoted or given very menial tasks to do maybe people are now being mean to me in the corridor so now i'm being retaliated against i realize that's for speaking up i start to defend myself and it polarizes from then and then I try to uh, fight back against retaliation. And then you find yourself in the position of whistleblower. Very few people 
you know, there, there are stories like Edward Snowden and things like this where people stand up and say, right, today I am going to disclose. But in many, many cases, it's a long accidental process that you find yourself in that position, but you never chose it. And I think that's really important to, to highlight. But if, if somebody is in that situation, they are at work uh, at the moment and they are seeing something, they're considering disclosing, they are maybe suspecting that the disclosure may not be welcome. There is very solid and good advice that they should read and consider before doing anything because this is serious stuff obviously Transparency International Ireland have very useful guidelines on their website there's an excellent book called The Whistleblower Survival Guide by the best uh, and long-standing legal firm in the world is uh, one of them anyway dealing with these issues uh, GAP US it's a book by Tom Devine and um, his colleague Masarani it's called yeah The Corporate Whistleblower Survival Guide these are very practical guides about what you should do um, seeking advice, seeking help, seeking uh, speaking to your other half if you have one or your close friends or family before making any decision and, and where to go to for legal advice because none of this is to be taken on lightly, you know, and uh, and not to sort of scare individuals. But, um, but uh, yeah, there is advice out there and so it's important that people know and will consider it. Okay, that's right. I think that's good. I think it's good to have, you know, for individuals who might be listening to this, that, uh, that practical advice. And I guess if I'm trying to sum it for the organisational and state leaders is is to really take the spirit of the legislation and, and, and to implement that. So thanks very much for coming in today, Kate. Thanks for having me. So that's all we have time for on this episode of Insights, the Cubs UCC podcast. And my thanks to Kate Kenny, Professor of Business and Society at NUI Galway, for joining me on the show. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. And join me next time for new ideas, research and perspectives in Ireland and the world from us here at Cubs UCC. Thanks for listening.